Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So today's sutta is the Rahugata Sutta, and it follows nicely our two classes on the Paticca Samuppada Sutta, the, the uh, primary sutta on dependent origination. Uh, and remember, this is all part of the, the broader uh, structured study of jhana meditation that we're engaged in right now. Um, so we learned in the last two classes uh, where all stress and suffering, self-referential stress and suffering arises from. And the Buddha teaches that it is out of ignorance of Four Noble Truths, as a requisite condition, comes fabrications. Fabrications are a corrupted way of looking at ourselves in relation to the world, meaning that it's ongoing thinking that is rooted in what? Rooted in ignorance of the, of the reality of Four Noble Truths. And so anything that follows from that fabrication because of the way that it's framed by a fabrication that is ignorant of Four Noble Truths, can only contribute to further ignorance. So it is that very specific way of thinking that the Buddha recognized as the problem, and he developed a way, rooted in jhana meditation, that addresses this very problem. The problem is developed further from jhana, from a well-concentrated mind, by recognition, recognition of ignorance, and abandoning that very ignorance. So... Excuse me, let me read the sutta. And you'll also notice in the sutta uh, the very basic and practical nature. The, the Buddha is addressing the most human experience of aliveness, meaning feeling. So if we don't feel, you cannot call us even a sentient being. A sentient being must feel in order for it to be sentient, to, to apply its senses to what's occurring. And so this most basic of experience of humanity is where we bring the Dhamma. And the Buddha teaches us how to bring it to this most basic experience of being alive. On one occasion, a certain monk went to the Buddha with a question. Upon arrival, he bowed and sat to one side. Great teacher, just now in seclusion, meaning in jhana meditation, the thought occurred to me. You speak of three types of feelings. There is a feeling of pleasure, a feeling of pain, and a feeling that is neither pleasure nor pain. Then you said that whatever feeling arises, they are all stressful. Again, it's such a profound thing for us to learn as human beings because we are conditioned to believe that we should chase after only feelings that are pleasurable and do everything we can to avoid anything that is unpleasurable. And further, we are further conditioned to avoid an experience of neither pleasure nor pain, uh, that experience of ambiguity that most grasping after human minds will describe as boredom, and some as extreme boredom. And so you remember back to our, our eight classes on the Satipatthana Sutta, where the, the, the Buddha teaches in meditation to first establish that first foundation of mindfulness of being mindful of the breath in the body. And then as a feeling or thought arises, to recognize that that feeling or thought has arisen, do what with it? Nothing else but, but we uh, regain control of our minds through jhana meditation, through our breath. Be mindful of our breath. 
the most difficult thing that beginning meditators, and I would say even long-term meditators, have to deal with, though, is that that feeling of neither pleasure nor pain, that ambiguity, that boredom. And that is what drives most people off of their cushion. And it which gets and the inability to deal with just boredom foments grasping after a feeling or a thought or a thought attached to the feeling. So again, this most basic of teachings, to be mindful of what our self-referential feelings and thoughts are doing to us, to recognize that and abandon any self-reference in relation to feeling or thought. Continue. Just to go back that one sentence. Then you said that whatever feeling arises, they are all stressful. In what connection did you say this? The Buddha responds, excellent question, my friend, excellent question. I have spoken of these three feelings of pleasure, pain, and neither pleasure nor pain. I have also stated that whatever feeling arises, they are all stressful. I have stated this in connection to fabrications. Remember the second aspect of dependent origination or the first link in the chain. Ignorance is a requisite condition. As a requisite condition comes fabrications. Fabrications are impermanent. It is the nature of fabrications to arise and pass away, to change. Yet because we believe in the fabrication, we're conditioned to believe in it. We condition ourselves to believe in the fabrication. We insist that our fabrications are, are permanent. And as soon as we insist that our fabrications are permanent or an achievement or an acquisition that we wish to hold on to, we are going against our own nature. Fabrications are impermanent. So what should we do when we recognize a thought or an idea has occurred to us? Be mindfully present with it and take a breath. And if it's a thought or a feeling that is informing present moment action of some, co- some kind, a thought or a deed, we then are able to, to, in, to manifest that thought or a deed in a way that is in, in accordance with an eightfold path, in accordance with refined mindfulness, well concentrated, that in no way can contribute to any further stress, to any further ignorance. And it is that type of gentle control of our minds that the Buddha is talking about and that we're developing through Dhamma practice. The Buddha then continues, I stated that whatever feeling arises, they are all stressful. Furthermore, I have also taught the step-by-step process of the cessation of fabrications. So again, the Buddha is, is unique in all of the spiritual teachers, so-called, that I've ever come across, that don't just describe the problem, such as greed or anger or hatred or poverty or whatever it might be, a lack of prayer, a lack of bowing, a lack of chanting. He doesn't address any of those things as the problem. The problem is fabrication. So how do we bring fabrications to cessation? When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the first jhana, speech falls away, meaning fabricated speech or wrong speech. And again, relate this to your own jhana practice. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the second jhana, the second level of meditative absorption, directed thought and evaluation falls away. So the first foundation of mindfulness, we take a breath in our body, and that, that chatter that's going on, the, the speech that we're telling ourselves, that manifests as a distracting feeling or a distracting thought or a distracting thought attached to a feeling, meaning an emotion, we simply recognize the speech 
and take a breath. And so that speech falls away. This sounds like something um, at first as a difficult accomplishment, but we do it every time we meditate with jhana meditation and recognize that we're caught up in that self-dialogue, that self-speech. We take a breath, the speech quiets, our mind calms. That's what the Buddha is referring to. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the first jhana, speech falls away. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the second jhana, concentration is deepening, directed thought and evaluation falls away. You've all experienced this. In that moment when you've gone beyond the need to direct your thought back to your breath and you simply recognize as an aspect of concentration that you're caught up in your thought or a feeling and you simply come back to your sensation of breathing, that's the second jhana. And what did you do to, to achieve that second jhana? Directed thought and evaluation simply falls away. There's no struggle there. There's just, there, there's just the gentleness of jhana meditation. And if it hasn't occurred yet, what do we do? We take a breath. And it is in a continuing deepening of concentra- concentration excuse me, that we're able to continually deepen these, these levels of jhana meditation. The Buddha continues, when a Dhamma practitioner, I'm sorry, when a Dhamma practitioner has attained the third jhana, jhana, rapture falls away. Rapture is not an archaic expectation of a second coming of Christ. Rapture in this sense is simply a joyful engagement with the Dhamma. So this, the development of the third jhana doesn't mean that, that that joyful engagement, rapture has fallen away, so now meditation is a chore. It simply means even the, the experience of joy falls away and what's left. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the fourth jhana, in and out breathing has passed away. That's the establishment of, of the fourth foundation of mindfulness of equanimity. Of course, it doesn't mean that we are no longer breathing. We simply no longer have to be mindful of each breath to have established that level of jhana. And every one of us has experienced this in jhana meditation. You might not have recognized it now, but I hope you will in the future. It, and notice that the Buddha doesn't put a time frame on it, meaning when you get to that fourth jhana, that's it, we're done. No, this level of jhana is as impermanent as all other levels, but we keep coming back to the refuge of jhana meditation to establish it and reestablish it. The Buddha continues. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the fabricated dimension of infinite space, the, perfect, the perception of form passes away. This is not a higher level of meditation even though the sequence might imply that it is. The Buddha is addressing this now because it was a, a common um, grasping after achievement of meditation practice during the Buddha's time, just as prevalent today. Using meditation to escape the, the physical mind and conjure up or imagine a non-physical establishment, which is really just a fabricated idea. Even though... We, we might have grand fantasies that have played out, great stories that have played out over the years about non-physical realms and the inhabitants of those realms and, those, and the protectors that are there for us in those realms. The Buddha said, nonsense, stop going there. It's a fabrication. It's only painful. Stop it. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the fabricated dimension of, the infin- of infinite space, the perception of form passes away. 
So he's taking us through these fabricated realms and describing how we abandon even these. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the fabricated dimension of infinite consciousness, the perception of the dimension of infinite space passes away. So again, the Buddha is saying these things that people thought as grand achievements are just as impermanent as any other feeling or thought. They simply pass away as we move from one fabricated idea to another. There is no value to them. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the fabricated dimension of nothingness, the perception of the dimension of infinite consciousness passes away. So these things that we've been developing and bouncing from one achievement to the next, thinking that we're doing something in our meditation, are now just seen as another fabrication. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the fabricated dimension of neither perception nor non-perception, this is something that the, the teacher Nagarjan, if you've ever studied him, made famous. He made a, a career out of this, this one notion, neither perception nor non-perception. The perception of the dimension of nothingness then passes away. When a Dhamma practitioner has recognized and abandoned these qualities, all of them, they have attained the cessation of the perception of feelings. So all of these fabricated things that we might be grasping after, the more mystical and magical aspects, the Buddha teaches us are just a way of maintaining a fabricated, corrupted way of thinking within our feelings. Because they give us some feeling of, ach of achievement or attainment. And I can describe you know, numerous, maybe hundreds of meditative experiences that I had, and while I was having them, I thought I had achieved something. And they were all fleeting. And they were all a distraction because for, for quite a while afterwards, I kept trying to recreate this feeling and this conceptual application of my mind that was just that. It had no, no fact, no rooting, rooting in, in reality. It was just something that made me feel good and distracted me away from what really was my own discontent. And it, it did nothing for me except, except continued distraction towards this ever, towards using meditation for acquisition rather than concentration. And it wasn't until I understood that that jhana meditation was able to bring me some benefit. The Buddha continues, when these unskillful mental qualities have ended, when they've ended, through this practice, when these unskillful mental qualities have ended, the three defilements of greed, aversion, and delusion also end. And that's the culmination of the path. The cessation of the three defilements. Furthermore, I have also taught the step-by-step -step process of stilling the fabrications. How do we do that? When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the first jhana, speech has been stilled. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the second jhana, directed thought and evaluation has stilled. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the third jhana, rapture has been stilled. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the fourth jhana, in and out breathing has been stilled. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the fabricated dimension of infinite space, the perception of form has been stilled, etc., etc., leading up to. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the fabricated, the fabricated dimension of neither perception nor non-perception, the perception of the dimension of nothingness has been stilled as well. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the cessation of perception and feelings, perception and feelings have been stilled. So it doesn't mean that we've gotten to, the, to this profound level of jhana practice where we're no longer able to feel or perceive. What does it mean? 
it means that we're feeling based on what's occurring rather than what is fabricated. When these unskillful mental qualities have ended, greed, aversion, and delusion have also been stilled. Because we're no longer fabricating our experience, there's nothing left to grasp after. There's nothing left for further entanglement with the, with the, the world or my ideas, ideas excuse me, entangled with the world. Does that make sense to everyone? Is there any confusion about what I'm saying? Okay, because this is really, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is the heart of the matter. You've heard me talk about uh, refined mindfulness being applied right here and right now. This is what we're talking about. It's that refined mindfulness, seeing things within the framework of the Eightfold Path, that rest in jhana meditation, that allows me to see what's occurring in my mind right now in reality, without any eye-making, without any stress. And so, in that way, in each and every moment, as I'm able to maintain that quality of mind, I am simply contributing to another moment of calm and peace. While profoundly engaged in this moment, how is that possible for me to be profoundly engaged in this moment? Because I do it without me, meaning without a fabricated me. It's an authentic me. It's a human being having a human experience without the need for it to be any different than it is, driven by ignorance. Driven by ignorance. That's what, crea- that's what creates discontent. And again, it, just to define it, discontent is the immediate need for something to be different in this moment, isn't it? It could be an ongoing discontent, but it's still occurring in this moment. So I address my own discontent, I own it, it's occurring to me, in this moment. And I do it with a, with a well-concentrated mind that can now see things clearly. I recognize that my discontent was arising from my inability up until now to see things clearly. Right view. Now, friend. Excuse me. Now, friend. There are these six profound calmings. When we experience these, these this is the ultimate calming. And notice that these are uh, immediately achievable by every human being. It doesn't take any special capabilities to do this. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the first jhana, jhana, speech has been calmed. So I know we're saying the same thing. This is a third time now. But look at the context. First, the Buddha is describing what we can achieve. Now he's saying this is what we have achieved. And I would ask you again to recognize that you have achieved this in your jhana meditation. To recognize that. The the recognition of it is important because once we recognize it, then we own it. Once we own it, we can build on it. It's now the foundation for our our jhana and our dhamma practice. Second, when a jhana practitioner has attained the second jhana, directed thought and evaluation have been calmed. And again, has anyone not recognized this experience of of the second level of jhana? Third, when a jhana practitioner has attained the third jhana, rapture has been calmed. So I'm no longer even having that feeling of joyful engagement. It's simply fallen away. Because even joyful engagement at this level is a form of distraction or you could even say agitation. Fourth, when a dhamma practitioner has attained the fourth jhana, in and out breathing has been calmed. The Buddha is using this in and out breathing, not to say we stop breathing, but in that 
in that act. He's teaching us that all of life is encapsulated in that breath. So what he's saying is, in the context of jhana meditation, as we're able to be mindful of our in and out breathing, we're able to calm our entire life. In and out breathing has been calmed. It's no longer agitated. The best way I can explain this is notice or remember a time when you were, uh, you were, uh, an immediate fear arose in you. The first thing you do is catch your breath. Your in and out breathing isn't calm at that point, is it? But as you start regaining control of your mind and understanding the situation, your breath calms as well. It's a physiological response to stress, isn't it? A rapid and tight breath. So it's the perfect metaphor, not even a metaphor, it's a perfect experience of a calm and peaceful mind. Our in and out breathing has calmed. That's how we know we're practicing the jhana in accordance with the Buddhist Dhamma. In and out breathing has calmed. Fifth, when a Dhamma practitioner has attained the susception of perception and feeling, perception and feeling have been calm. When a Dhamma practitioner's effluence have ended, passion has been greed aver- effluence or greed aversion and deluded thinking. Passion has been calmed. Aversion has been calmed. Delusion has been calmed. Let me just read that again, just for emphasis. Because this is the end of the sutta. When a Dhamma practitioner, that's us, effluence have ended, passion has been calmed. This is, this, is, this is a reference to the dispassionate nature now of how we're living our lives. I'm no longer trying to continually establish me and my ideas. I'm now simply a reference point to my life unfolding. When a Dhamma practitioner's effluence have ended, passion has calmed, aversion has been calmed, and deluded thinking has been calmed. That's the end of the sutta. So, I think you see how this relates directly to our jhana structured study, but also a key teaching on what to do when we find ourselves agitated, but also what to do when we find ourselves with a calm and peaceful quality of mind. Recognize that it's through our own efforts that we've been able to develop this for ourselves. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Let's, uh, let's go to Alex. I'd like to hear what Alex has to say. Hi, John. Um, yeah, I'm just um, gathering my thoughts, really. Um, <clears throat> so, I could try and summarize. I mean, first of all, I was struck by the idea that all feelings are stressful. And I was thinking about I guess it's um, the the idea that anything we cling to or whenever we slip from the moment, from what is occurring right now and start to fabricate it in any way, whether that's seeing it in a different light or naming it or wanting more of it. Personalizing um, it. we're, we're We're feeding ourselves more stress or more potential for stress. Yes. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I did read this before you read it and having you read through it and go over everything was really helpful. Um, the only thing, the only question I had was, is he saying at the end, is he talking about when he, when he says stilled, is he talking about that's kind of, when these 
when these unskillful qualities have been stilled, that's kind of us on the path. But when they've been calmed, that's when we've attained enlightenment. Is that right? Well, it's, it's such an important question, Alice, because it, it, it implies that, yes, you, you understand the direction we're going to. So that, that awakened state, it, it's, it's very, very difficult for, for us yeah. to conceptualize it in reality, because it really can only be experienced. But, so we have to understand the context and what the Buddha is teaching, too, to, understand, to answer that question. So that, that calm mind is an aspect of an awakened mind, but it's also an aspect of an awakening mind. Meaning it's important yeah. to recognize that in this moment, when I've taken the direct experience of recognizing that I'm caught up in a deluded thought, unite my mind in my body, jhana, in that moment I'm experiencing the quality of an awakened mind. So the, 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 the substance indifference between yeah. that mind, say, in a beginning Dhamma practitioner and one who has attained culmination of the path is just that. It's a matter of um, permanent impermanence, if you will. But it, it is, and I say it that way because that is a, the, the awakened mind is a mind, you've heard me use this phrase, we gain the ability to be at peace with less than peaceful mind states. Yeah. So the Buddha, and just, this is just another good example of this, the Buddha, this is, um, I used to read, I knew exactly, it was, it's about 40 years into his dispensation of 46 years. And he, no, it was early now, it was 20 years. The Buddha got word that his father was dying. He didn't just sit there like, man, okay, I, I have no attachment to dear old dad, that's long behind me, you know, I'm above all that, I'm a spiritual guy. He got up, got up off his cushion, put on his two outer robes, and began to walk the 140 miles, with the thought that I want to be with my dad just one more time, and if I can do so, just to offer him a bit of Dhamma before he passes. Is that a self-referential thought, or is it a, an awakened thought? I would say it's an awakened thought, because he did it without any passion. He did it as a matter of fact of what any son would do without losing his mind over, oh my God, my dad's dying, how can that happen? Why is God doing that? What am I going to do without him? You know, yep. and all the other things that might come from that. What an awful life this is. Yep. It was just, it was the appropriate response. It's pure acceptance. Yep. Yeah, and I had people question, well, why would you care if your dad died? I, I, in fact, I, I was talking with someone yesterday about this, maybe earlier today. Um, when my dad died about a year and a half ago, it was 101, so we all knew it was coming. Um, and I hadn't seen him for a couple of weeks. I might have even talked about this on Thursday. But when I walked into the, into the wake and I saw my dad in the open coffin for the first time, it was just this, this profound feeling, I still have it now, of just an incredible appreciation for having known this guy. It wasn't anything like it shouldn't have happened or, you know, I'm going to miss him and all the rest of this. It was just, I'm so fortunate to have known this man. And he wasn't, you know, my dad wasn't perfect. Nobody had a perfect dad. But it was just that. It was just this present moment acceptance of what had occurred. Period. And if, if, you, if in that occasion you are surrounded by people who don't have that quality of mind, how do you, do you find it difficult to maintain it? Or how, yeah, how do you protect yourself from others? It's, it, again, Alex, you asked such great questions because that's a, just going back to that, that's a good example because obviously um, there was still um, 
three brothers and one sister left in our family, immediate family, kids. And they were all, you know, as you could expect, pretty pretty much upset. And some were, um, you know, really getting, I don't want to, they were getting dramatic, but I'm not, not, I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. They were acting as yeah. best as they could, but they were, um, and then there were, well, let me leave it, leave it at that. I, I did get, um, I had, how do I say this? My, my older sister came up to me and said, what's the matter with you? And she was implying, yeah. how come you're not upset? And the yeah. only thing I could, I could tell her is I put my arms around her and I hugged her and I said, he was a good man, wasn't he? Because that's all I could do. If yeah. I tried to explain to her, that was not an opportunity to teach to John and say, you know, I'm resting in John. But I was able to maintain a calm and peaceful mind. And I think I was able to be a little bit of a calming presence to the rest of the room. But that's, that's really irrelevant. Because whether I was or not, I was able to maintain a calm and peaceful mind and not contribute to the drama that was going on around me. So in all ways, and I, I think you've heard me say it this way too, the most loving thing I can do for myself and for all others is to take to the Dhamma and awaken. So at least in, the, in my moment-by-moment moment life, I know that I'm no longer contributing to the stress and suffering of the world. How did I yeah. do that? Because I, I've taken care of my own. Yeah. And that's, that's a truly salvific teaching, isn't it? Even though the Buddha didn't teach it to be salvific. Great questions, and you're going in the right direction, Alex. Thank you. Jeff, how are you? Good, John. Uh, as always, there's a lot here. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the first thing that struck me when I read through this a couple of times was th- there there were a lot of uh, a lot of specific uh, instructions here, a lot of, a lot of words. Yeah. And it, I was logically the only thing it it could mean was that he was speaking directly to concerns contemporaneous to his time. Yes. And you're saying that confirmed that for me. And I was, I was glad to hear that because logically it's the only, only reason to go down through each and every one of these, not that they aren't applicable to us, but it looks like he was answering specific concerns. Yes. Yeah, specific uh, concerns of Rohagata. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, I, I, the question I have, I guess, is that uh, in meditation, in jhana, um, I, I do experience these different levels, I think. Um but it almost seems kind of counterproductive to focus on those. Ah, yes. Right? I yes, mean, it, thank it, you. Right? I mean, it, you're almost creating the fabrications you're trying to abandon. Yes. Um, thank you for bringing... I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, that's okay. It's just a thought. I mean, um, so... Uh, I, I guess when I'm in meditation, the mo- more productive sessions I've had are when um, I realize that the the, the meditation is over, <laughs> and I, I, I don't retain any uh, that I feel very neutral. Yeah, I would I would say. Um... 
that's the general experience after meditation. I mean, I, I always feel a, a little measure of deepening calm after a session than I do before, but, you know, I think we all should do them, right? but I don't look for it. Um, and to get back to your to the first point about the deepening levels of jhana, going from trying to notice the first to the second can be a distraction. Yes, but the Buddha never taught it that way. We're going to, the rest of this um, structured study is going to address the different levels of jhana in different ways through different suttas. Um, they're just taught by the Buddha and, and now by me at, to recognize that your, that your jhana practice is, is developing concentration. And we know it because we can see these definite levels, but there's not, there's no benchmark between one, two, and two, and three, etc. They're really just a natural flow of deepening concentration. But it's important to recognize that, yes, I, I notice it, so now I know that my, I'm doing jhana right, and it's bearing the fruit that it's supposed to bear. So again, even when you notice, the sequencing isn't always, uh, the sequencing isn't written in stone. In other words, you might find yourself in a, in a start your meditation, and depending on past conditioning, you might find yourself in a fabricated dimensioning of nothingness, where you where you feel like, wow, there's nothing here. I've I've developed no mind, whatever that might be. Now we know that's not an achievement. It's just a distraction. We take a breath, come back to the sensation of breathing. So that's that's dropping out of a fabricated level, coming back into a deeper level of jhana, and that's the only reason these jhanas are taught. They're important, but they're not there to, to as a benchmark for achievement, just for recognition. So yeah, it's it's almost as if you're there when when you when you're coming back, as opposed yes. to when you're going there. Yeah, and and you can, and I I think as we continue this, you're going to notice this uh, more clearly simply because we're talking about it and I'm teaching it. But you'll I think you can all notice when speech has fallen away, when that self talk has fallen away. You know that, that you do that every time you take a breath. That self-talk is falling away. You're not talking to yourself anymore. And as we as we deepen our meditation, you no longer have to remind yourself to go back to your breath. You do it naturally. That's directed thought. And you'll find that you're no longer judging your meditation. You're simply getting to that experience where you described Jeff as meditation is over. In other words, that's the you're no longer evaluating it. You're just finished. Mm-hmm. And the other levels, it's important to recognize too. That fourth level of jhana, that that level of uh, equanimity, is simply a balanced mind state that's free of conflict. And so we recognize it on our cushion, so that we can, we can recognize it off our cushion as well. Thank you, Jeff. Tom, how are you? Um, good, thank you, John. Um, good. Yeah, and um, thanks for the teaching. My pleasure. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll um, maybe just build a little bit on what one of the things that Alex said and something that came out in your teachings at the beginning, you know, that all feeling is stress, right? And it's just, I mean, I guess I it, it got me to reflect on my own day and how I directly experienced that, which is, you know, the whole sort of come and see for yourself um, approach of, um, uh, or invitation that the Buddha gave us, um, and it, it, it was funny. There was I was in a sort of a shared working space earlier, and um, there was somebody 
um, I was very attracted to that was in the in the office, right? And so this um, person was kind of getting my attention, and obviously I was there for several hours, and she was there for several hours, and we are programmed in our mind to think that is it's the pleasure, isn't it? It's like the seeking the pleasure. I mean, that's why we're deeply programmed as human beings to be attracted to certain people and not attracted to others. Um, And so, you know, I, it was only later, well, I I experienced a whole gamut of kind of feelings, I guess, associated with that. But it was only a bit later, actually, when I started meditating, because she left the office um, maybe 10 minutes before we started our session. That I, when I sat with the feeding, I realized it was just stress. It caused a stress in me. Yeah. And even though it was um, pleasurable. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're 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 programmed to think that we go after that that pleasure, so to speak. Yeah. And yet, it's all just it, when I actually gained just a little bit. It wasn't a lot, but just a tiny bit of sort of clarity of mind through the meditation. I was able to r- wake up to the fact that it was just a stressful feeling. Um, Outstanding. And so, yeah, and so that's, that's I guess, the that's the sort of the, the stage of the journey that I'm on at the moment where I, I recognize that kind of stressful feeling and I'm eventually allow, able to let go of it, uh, yeah. which obviously, before I started meditating, I wouldn't have even been there at all. I would have probably been, you know, reading up some finding out some way to, you know, somehow satisfy that, 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 um, you know, um, interest that I had or whatever. But so so I'm not, uh, that's great. But then I guess the, to then bring it back to what would a fully enlightened person do, they wouldn't have that, you know, they would, they would cut, cut the sort of, um, you know, the, um, cut off the, that sort of, um, inclination of the mind from the beginning right so it just wouldn't that that's what would happen eventually if you if you practice enough and you are able to sort of um reprogram your way of reacting to such situations then you wouldn't feel that stress in the first place because it would you would just be able to let everything come and go is that is that right that's exactly right but your but the process of getting what you just described is your, what you, the entirety of what you talked about, the recognition that, yeah, that girl's got my attention and all the thoughts that would follow from that. Um, now, somebody just, I just lost my train of thought for a moment. Now you just see it as, a, and you might even be a person that you are attracted to, but it's not a distraction. It's, it's, it, you're, it's just a reference point to what's occurring. And so you don't lose your mind in that moment into speculation or fantasy, you know, and, and it, so it's just that way. On the outside, nobody would notice a difference, but you would yeah. because you would have maintained a calm and peaceful mind. But it's important to recognize that you were caught up in a distraction. That's Dhamma practice. You're, again, as I've said it you know, three times now, that is, that is perfect Dhamma practice, to recognize when you're distracted, recognize that the object of your distraction is this, and and learn from it, which is what you just did, because you saw the reality of it. So you're also answering a question that I think comes up with almost every Dharma practitioner: What's going to happen to my feelings when I don't when I I'm, when they're no longer self-reference? Then it's just a pure feeling. 
You know, and we, we have that with, with any, anybody we encounter. Those, the inter, uh, who, I think it was Louise last week was talking about interpersonal relationships, what happens to them. They're simply much more profound and meaningful because you're, you're there. You're there for it. We don't, need, um, we don't need greed, aversion, or deluded thinking as a creative influence in our lives and in our world. Look, I mean, look what that has done. We, 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 will, we will manifest all the life we can handle by being present for it rather than grasping after it. So. Outstanding, Tom. Thank you. Thanks, John. Matteo, good to see you today. Hi, everybody. <clears throat> yeah, I was thinking like at uh, the, the beginning of your uh, your talk about boredom. That was like, uh, yeah, I was thinking like, a lot of people yeah, that are kind of scared probably or afraid or very a lot of concern with you know, what want to get bored. Yeah. Do a lot of silly things. You just fill up, fill up your time, and and I think in my, my in the last years, I I I try to be bored, not to kind of enjoy to be bored. To, to like, uh, okay, I don't, I don't do nothing today. I want to get deadly bored and see what, what, what's oh, happening. That's great. I, I love it. <laughs> and uh, and I think also. So you were grasping because... after boredom. No, no, no. I'm okay. I'm okay. <laughs> But I think, like, uh, um, I remember one of your first class, maybe it's not related to today, when I joined in 2020, when you say, like, oh, when you you say something like that, when you feel bored, that is the right time to go to meditate. Yeah. And uh, I, I did that, like, I did that. When I was, like, I was born and was start to do anything, basically nothing very profitable for my spirit and my, my mind or anything. So, okay, let, let me meditate. And, uh I, I didn't do it in a, in a way to don't get bored, but it was like, um, yeah. it made me think a lot when I say, oh, sometimes we should just stay there and and look like a flower, or look just the sky and, and that's it. And, and, and still more profitable than watching TV or yep. anything else. Yeah, yeah I, I, I agree completely. Again, it's pure Dharma practice to be able to do that, to... to to be able to sit in a situation that you would normally classify as bore, boredom or boring and just have a calm and peaceful mind. You know, and what, when, when we all think about that, what more could we want out of life than to have nothing going on and to be content? That's the end of the path, isn't it? And again, it doesn't mean that we're not going to be doing things in our lives, but we, we certainly won't waste our time doing things that are of no Dhammic value, you know, all those things in our lives become very, very simple. Our relationships with other people become very simple too because we're not always grasping after more. You know, the next, the next most interesting person or the next new girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever we might be into or even the next new idea. We, we cease grasping after ever romantic ideas because we're content in our own thinking now. Remarkable. Thank you, Matteo. Uh, Devlin, do you want to join us? No need to if you don't want uh, to. But, ah, there you are. How are you, Devlin? Sure. How are you doing? Good. Uh, can you hear me fine? Yep. Welcome. Thank you. Um, well, uh, much of this information is, uh, you know, still over my head, I guess. Uh, but um, I guess the way that you've explained the sutta, it drives home uh, for me the point that 
meditation is simply to increase your concentration, nothing yes. more or less. And, um, you know, ultimately what we're trying to achieve in this practice is to uh, increase understanding on the one hand and concentration on the other. Yes. And, uh, right. Yeah, and, and it is through ever-deepening concentration that we're able to develop that understanding. But, I mean, that's, right. think about that. We can't, we can't learn math if we don't apply concentration to learning math. So it's, that's, any time we deepen our concentration, we deepen our ability to understand, and then we're, we're understanding something very specific for a noble truth. And so you got it, Devlin. You know, that, that's why we meditate. Um, right. Do you, do you understand the connection between not seeing things clearly and creating a corrupted view of what we're seeing? Yes, I do. It, I, I, what um, is hard for me to understand is the, uh, the concepts of um, um, name and form and mm-hmm. how that leads to uh, the concept of becoming. You know, it's still... Uh, yeah, like I said, but it's still over my head. Yeah, and that, that, that idea, that understanding, name and form uh, simply means self-identification with this fabricated view. You know, I, I've given a name to this form. I call it, my, my form I call John Haspel, and since I'm so identified with it, I, I'm condemned to the death to defend it, you know, just being a little bit dramatic there. When we let go, when I let go of those views that this is what I am and this is all that I am, then I no longer have to defend it or promote it. I can just be what I am. And that that person is the same. Whether it's a person caught up in a fabrication that is prone to stress and suffering because of that, that corrupted view of self, or that person that is in radical acceptance of its own humanity. And that's, that's where we're going with this. So uh, I'm glad you joined us today, Devlin. Um, we're going to talk soon, I hope. Uh, yes, definitely. Great, just let me know. Uh, Jordan, how are you? Hi, John. I'm doing okay, thank you. Good. Um, yeah, that was an interesting talk. Um, not directly related to, to the talk, but obviously not unrelated. I had a fair few, fair few thoughts. And one was um, the difference between um, being introspective and as we are, um, but as practitioners, just constantly kind of thinking about how we react to the world and how, how that's different to how it's different to just kind of our own our whole world just being us and our minds yeah um and how that um yeah how we how we manage the difference between introspection versus versus ego making um and whether that is um um what was i going to say yeah whether kind of i see it i see a lot in in some people for example my mum. she said um five kids she was a mum from age 23 and she's never had a second to kind of really sit and think about how her mind reacts to things and she's she's very yes very happy in herself and happy in the life she's created and um is isn't yeah that's that's just a kind of completely different way to kind of fill your life and is there do you think there's also value in it Oh, I, I certainly wouldn't devalue any. Yeah, I wouldn't devalue sorry. any human. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. you. No, I was just. No, I think you got the gist of what I was saying. 
Yeah, I wouldn't devalue any human life in any way, no matter, I mean, I wouldn't, even somebody who ended up as a, well, I don't want to go too far with that. Um, My mom was, it sounds like very similar. She had six kids. She was pleasant and, and happy and I would say fulfilled throughout most of her life. But she also was riddled with a lot of fear, you know, and, and uh, uh, she did not have a deep level of equanimity. She was a normal human being. Uh, what we're looking for, what, why you're here, is to develop a deeper understanding. And so you mentioned introspection. There's a... There's a word that, in fact, it's, a, it's a misused mostly in modern Buddhism called vipassana, insight. But it's very specific insight. It's introspective insight into the three marks of existence. That's the, that's the specific and well-focused insight we're looking for. We're not looking for, and this is the problem with modern vipassana, is it's presented as we're, we're, we should have insight into all things. Well, that's just constant distraction, isn't it? That's what we're grasping after as as non-Dhamma practitioners. We're trying to gain insight into the shiny red Lamborghini or the next new girlfriend or whatever else it might be. We want insight into the, the three marks of existence, in the impermanence of all things, the misunderstanding of self, and the resulting dukkha that comes from those first two, the ongoing stress and suffering. And remember, the Buddha taught anatta, meaning it's because of a misunderstanding of self that we become anything other than self. That's a fabricated self. So again, it's very specific introspection, introspective insight into these three marks. And that's, what we're, that's what's framed by the Eightfold Path. Um, so relating that to, um, to your mom's life or anybody else's life who might seem um, pleasant and peaceful and successful, that's great. I, I, I would never tell your mom or anyone else you're doing something wrong, you better take to the Dhamma. That's not for me. What my role is, is people that are interested in understanding Four Noble Truths, how to do that. And that's for people, as a Buddha taught, with, with just a speck of dust in their eyes. That doesn't mean that those with just a speck of dust in their eyes are somehow better, more advanced, more religious, more spiritual. It just It's just a definition. There's some people in this world that have just a speck of dust in their eyes that can develop an understanding of Four Noble Truths and want to. Again, the Buddha didn't teach him, see himself as a savior. He didn't teach a salvific religion, meaning everybody should come to this because it's for their own good. I think that's nonsense. I think everybody should come to this that wants to. Period. Because those are the only ones that are going to learn it anyway. It's a hard thing. Thank you, Jordan, for that. We touched on so many deep ideas, and this is one of them that Jordan brought up, that anything worthwhile has to be for the good of all humanity. Bullshit. That's the problem with humanity. And that's the problem, I think, in a general way where we're going as a society. And that relates to, that. then that has to relate to the least common denominator rather than the greatest opportunity. So the least common denominator in the modern world is ignorance. The greatest opportunity is wisdom, understanding Four Noble Truths. That's the significant difference between what the Buddha taught and everything else that is salvific, because it's rooted in the least common denominator rather than the, the, the highest goal of understanding what it means to be a human being. Does everybody understand that last? Because that's really important. We're not looking to save ourselves or anyone else. 
We're simply developing an understanding of what it means for me to be a human being in this lifetime. And I can tell you that that understanding has changed everything for me. I no longer grasp at salvation. I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm much closer to the end than most of you. Um, and every time I go to a doctor, I think I'm even closer than that. And I, I, have, I have no fear. I simply, and it's not that I'm looking forward to it, I'm not. This moment is the most precious moment of my entire life. But I also know the end is coming, and when it comes, it comes. I'm just, I, my mindset is that I, I just consider myself so fortunate to be here right now. Notice I didn't say I'm so fortunate to have the life I've lived or the life I might live. My life, our lives only have meaning in this moment. Of course, I have an understanding of the, of the, um, the totality of my life, but the only, only way I can do that in reality is to be present for what's occurring right now. And so everything that's happened in my life is culminating right now. How could I have any regrets? Do you know many people that, that, that leave their physical life without any regrets? Well, I can't guarantee you that I won't, but I can tell you right now that I don't. That's remarkable to me. And I think you're all developing that kind of understanding. Um, and maybe we'll leave this, this teaching on fabrications with just this. Notice, notice the regrets that you have in your life. All of those are rooted in a fabrication. All of those are an aspect of dukkha. Remember how the Buddha describes dukkha. One of them is just that, not getting what we want. That's a regret. Getting what, what we don't want, another regret. So it's a simple term. We can recognize it in ourselves. Or can we take fulfillment and meaning in just having a human life? Because that's all we ever have. We can get all the things we want, all the new girlfriends and all the shiny cars and all the new, whatever the, you know, what, all the new stuff we want to get or think we need. And nothing can add to what I am. Nothing. The problem with a lot of stuff is ten people tend to pile that stuff on top of themselves and that's what they show the world. You know, my new girlfriend, a new boyfriend, and my shiny new car. That's what I want you to see. But what am I under, underneath all that? Am I a calm and peaceful human being that's not contributing to the stress and suffering of the world? Or am I full of fear and greed and aversion? I'd rather be the, you know, rather be the former. And that's what we're developing here. So again, it's such a pr profound class. Um, you're all developing the Dhamma as it's intended. And again, that's shown by, uh, by your questions and your comments, uh, which is, again, by the way, the, the reason why we run classes like this. So we're looking at all aspects of developing the Dhamma. You're not just listening to um, this crazy old bald guy in Pennsylvania telling you what to do. You're developing it yourself, and that's what you're talking about. You're describing it. It's so important. So, uh, Any other questions or comments before we finish with Meta? All right. We'll finish with Meta. Um, somebody mentioned uh, Becoming. I think, Tom, did you mention Becoming? Um, anyway, we're going to finish out uh, a structured study on karma, rebirth, and intentional becoming on our Tuesday and Thursday, uh, Tuesday and Saturday classes, uh, there's going to be six of those beginning a week from Saturday. 
And I'm only telling you, you know, I know that you can't, those are difficult times for you, but if you can listen to the recordings, I think you'll find them helpful. Because again, it gets to kind of a key concept of the Dhamma, of karma, rebirth, and becoming. So, All right, we'll finish with Metta as we always do. Give me a moment. So take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties, and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child her only child, so with a boundless heart to one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to, fear, to, to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class. Peace. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.